Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're continuing in the series Honoring the Gods in the Roman Empire. And this series is based on my graduate course I'm currently teaching. And each week after I've had the discussion with the students over the different readings we've had, I sit down here at the, the computer and talk a little bit about some of the issues we addressed and highlight a few things that might help you better understand what it was like on the ground in the Roman Empire to honor the gods. What did people concretely do in their day-to-day -day lives to honor the gods and interact with the gods in places like the cities in Asia Minor? The Greek city-states of Asia Minor happen to be our focus in this series. Today we're going to be looking at the very down-to-earth question of how the gods interact in daily life with people. And one of the things I want you to really get a sense of is that the gods in antiquity were understood to be interacting with human beings in an ongoing daily way in just about every aspect of life. So that the gods could be understood to be interacting with humans in their political life, in their social life, in their family life, in regards to healing, and in just about every other dimension of life, the gods play a role to some degree. And we want to today use Asclepius and the healing sanctuary of Asclepius at Pergamon in northwestern Asia Minor, also known as Pergamum, that this sanctuary will illustrate for us some of the ways in which a god could be considered to interact with his devotees. In this case, Asclepius is a specialized god, you could say, very well known for healing. There were other gods, though, that healed in this way. But in a more general way, uh, the study of Asclepius and the sanctuary at Pergamon and Aelius Aristides in particular, a figure who had interaction with Asclepius, will illustrate something that is true of many gods in the Roman Empire. And that is that there can be and often come nearby. They interact with humans. They help humans in an ongoing, real way in their daily lives. They save humans in a down-to-earth down manner. Salvation for people living in the Roman Empire was very much a here-and-now salvation. The gods provided benefactions that included salvation. Now we've already talked a little bit about that important exchange system that is the way of understanding cultural life in the Roman Empire and of understanding where the gods fit within cultural life. Namely that there's a whole system of honor and an exchange of benefactions for honor that favors that those higher in the cosmic or social hierarchy provide for those lower in the hierarchy. And that in return, those lower in the hierarchy return this with honors. And honors can include setting up inscriptions in honor of someone. They can include statues being established and set up. It could even include setting up a shrine or a whole building in honor of a particular person or God. So this whole exchange system is integral to the ways in which the gods are constantly interacting with human beings in the mindset of people living back in the Greek cities of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. And so in a way, with each of the weeks we look at things, we're going to be further developing our understanding of that system of exchange, where the gods provide favors, benefits, good things, benefactions, and human beings in return exchange honors for those favors that they get from the gods. And so there's a mutual relationship between 
humans and gods, even though there's a very clear distinction, obviously, in terms of status. In a way, we learned that last week with Artemis of Ephesus and the relationship between the civic community and Artemis of Ephesus. There was a very exchange-oriented relationship and a mutual relationship where one protected the other. So we're going to see that continuing in our discussion today. Before we get into Asclepius, I just need to say a few words about Pergamon itself as a city, just so you have a sense of what we're talking about here. Pergamon is in northwestern Asia Minor, northwestern Turkey. It was an important center for what was known as the Attalid Empire. Now, the Attalid Empire, in a way, was a continuation of a Thracian sort of dynasty. And so the Adelid Empire existed from about 281 BCE until 133 BCE. So for a couple hundred years there, we have an empire centered on uh, what you could call Thracian-oriented kings. Now, when th this Adelid Empire existed, Pergamon was the center of that empire. It was the, the place where the king established himself and the center from which administration took place. When the last Adelid king died, he left in his will the entire territory of the Adelid kingdom to the Romans. And so this is how the western portion of Turkey came into the hands of the Romans, not through conquest, but rather through a will. There's far more to that whole history that we can't go into today, including the long history of alliances that had grown up in those centuries there, in those decades, leading up to the bequeathing of the whole territory to the Romans in 133 BCE. Now, at first, it seems that Pergamon continued to be the administrative center for the Roman province of Asia, but that shifted by the time you get to the time of Augustus. It seems that Ephesus had shifted as the administrative center and the place where the Roman governor would stay uh, for a good portion of the time. So it's an important center, but not as important economically or politically, you could say, as Ephesus would become. Now, Pergamon had a, a similar sort of variety of cultic activity, of similar variety of rituals that took place in honor of various gods that you would find in other Greek city-states of Asia Minor. Uh, and it's quite typical in that regard. But a, a couple temples to mention to you beyond the one we're going to focus on are uh, the, the patron deity of Pergamon was Athena Nikephoros. And so uh, Ephesus had its patron deity, Artemis Ephesia, that we talked about last week. Well, we could have done a whole lecture here, a whole discussion of what Pergamon's patron deity was and some aspects of civic cult. There's also the famous great altar that has now been reconstructed in the Berlin Museum that is from ultimately from Pergamon. It's uncertain exactly who this giant altar was dedicated to, but it's most likely to Zeus. And so you even today can go and see this uh, giant altar in honor of a god, probably Zeus, at the Berlin Museum. It was very imposing aspect of the city of Pergamon. Pergamon had both an upper city up on the Acropolis, and that was where this great altar was up on the hill. There was also a lower city. So from the lower city, you would see this very imposing and uh, impressive altar. There are many other cults at Pergamon, as you would expect at a city like this. The, the Temple of Demeter is particularly prominent in, portion, in a portion, lower portion of the city. And we have many inscriptions pertaining to those who were active in the sanctuary of Demeter. 
Another little interesting example of a cult has to do with an association that has been uh, somewhat well documented. And we may be able to get into this type of group later on when we have a whole week on associations. But for now, I just wanted to at least mention this as an example of the types of activities in honor of the gods at Pergamon, that we have a Dionysus association that called itself the Dancing Cowherds. This was their title that they like to use for themselves. And we actually have excavated the meeting place of the Dancing Cowherds. It is a small banqueting hall that has benches all the way around for those who are members of the association to banquet together. It may have seated up to 50 people. There are many other gods that were honored in Pergamon. Can't go into all of that today. Let's talk about the Asclepion. Let's talk a little bit about the sanctuary devoted to Asclepius at Pergamon, which we're using today as an illustration of something. We're not saying that Asclepius is the most important god in the ancient world. We're not saying it was the most important god necessarily even in Pergamon. What we are saying is the case of the Asclepius sanctuary at Pergamon illustrates well the ways in which a god could be understood to interact in the everyday life of people, in this case in connection with healing people. And so the very down-to-earth way in which gods interacted with human beings is what we're going to get hopefully out of looking at the Asclepius sanctuary at Pergamon. Now healing sanctuaries dedicated to Asclepius are attested in several places throughout the Mediterranean world. Two of the most important and well-known ones, at least for what you could call translocal activity, where people might come from further afield in order to travel to that particular sanctuary of Asclepius, the two most important ones that we happen to know about are Epidaurus over in Greece and uh, this one in Pergamon. The Asclepion at Pergamon is among the most important, well-known sanctuaries of Asclepius where you might travel to be healed by Asclepius at the sanctuary. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't many others. There were in all kinds of locales, including in different parts of Asia Minor. And we may even get a chance to mention a couple of them later on. Now the buildings of the Asclepion, the Asclepius Sanctuary at Pergamon, involved a variety of buildings. And this is true of many sanctuaries in antiquity. A sanctuary is the term we use for the larger area that was dedicated to the god or goddess. And that within that sanctuary there may be more buildings within the dedicated sacred area. Uh, including the temple proper. So I'll use in this series the term sanctuary to describe the larger sort of complex dedica dedicated to a god. And then the word temple usually will be used for the building within that larger complex where the, often the statue of the god would be kept and where it's the actual dedicated, the temple dedicated to the god specifically. So the sanctuary of Asclepius at Pergamon included a, a variety of buildings. Now this, this particular sanctuary and these buildings that I'm going to briefly mention here are from the second century CE. So the sanctuary as it has been fully excavated today represents primarily the latest stage and the height actually of the Pergamon Asclepius sanctuary. It's height of popularity. It's uh, when it was most known. And it also coincides with a time when a figure we're going to soon talk about, Alias Aristides, an upper-class gentleman from Asia Minor who is an orator who liked to go around doing speeches, 
spent quite a bit of time, because of his illnesses, at the Asclepius Sanctuary at Pergamon, and he is from the mid-2nd century, from the 140s to the 150s and 160s CE. He gives us a narrative, what he calls the sacred tales, that tell the stories of his interactions with Asclepius and the healings that Asclepius provided him, the benefactions, the good favors that Asclepius brought to, to Aelius Aristides and the way in which Aelius Aristides honored the god in return, including writing these stories, the sacred tales. Now in those sacred tales we get a picture of the Asclepius, same Asclepius sanctuary that we know of from the archaeology of the second century. So it's we're dealing with second century CE here in this uh, particular episode primarily. Now if you're sitting at a computer now or when you get home from your jog or your drive to work here, you might want to check out what you can see from Google Maps. So if you go to Google Maps, type in Bergama. That's the modern name for what used to be known as Pergamum or Pergamon. Bergama, B-E-R-G-A-M-A -A in Turkey. Bergama, Turkey. Then once you get there, click on the satellite uh, section so that you can see a photo of this region. Now the central point you'll see there, the bubble A that you get is the center of the modern city of Bergama. To the north and east you will see the Acropolis that I mentioned earlier and the lower city and you can zoom in there a little bit and you'll see some of the remains of the buildings from the satellite photo. And you can zoom in closely if you want once you find them there. If you look a bit to the south and west, however, you will see where the Asclepion was located, where the Asclepius Sanctuary was located. Uh, it's located on what on, it looks like here. There's a, a Highway 35-01. So if you follow that out of Bergama there, just slightly down from that highway, you will find the Asclepius Sanctuary. Zoom in on it, and you can see the buildings that I'm going to talk about right now. The main buildings that we have are, first of all, there was a theater at the Asclepius Sanctuary. There was a library by the end of the second century. There was a temple of Asclepius proper that was actually a circular temple, a bit unusual for Greek sanctuaries. And another circular building, that the purpose of which is not exactly certain, that had an underground passageway that led to the center of the whole sanctuary. It seems that in the center of the whole sanctuary was the earlier buildings that, that had been more prominent in the Asclepius Sanctuary previously, and the Sacred Spring. So there's a Sacred Spring right smack dab in the middle of the whole courtyard of the main uh, sanctuary area. And beside this are buildings that most uh, have suggested are likely the incubation places for those who have come to be healed by Asclepius. Now, incubation is central to healing in an Asclepius sanctuary. What we mean by incubation is that you would come to the sanctuary, engage in certain rituals that would prepare you for being healed by Asclepius. You would then sleep in an incubatory area. And during your sleep, Asclepius would come to you and either heal you, so there's stories, uh, stories about people literally being operated on by Asclepius, uh, or would instruct you in your dreams as to what you needed to do in order to be healed by Asclepius. And we'll soon see with Aelius Aristides a couple examples of this, of the, the idea that gods come to you in the dreams and communicate directly with human beings.
This is a very down-to-earth, direct relationship that we find with Asclepius talking to people and helping people through their dreams. And so it illustrates that way in which the gods are interacting with humans in an everyday way. Now the Asclepius Sanctuary at Pergamon was, had some level of organization. We have mention in Alias Aristides' sacred tales, for example, of a priest, of two temple wardens, two people in charge of the temple, and other functionaries as well. And so these people would be assisting other physicians and doctors that would be likewise active in the sanctuary of Asclepius, assisting, they might have put it this way, assisting Asclepius in healing the, the devotees who come to honor him. Let's read here uh, one of the inscriptions that illustrates the preparatory work you needed to do in order to prepare for the incubation and prepare for uh, participating in a way that would allow you to be healed within the Asclepius Sanctuary. This is what the scholars often label a sacred law. In other words, it's an inscription that outlines the rules that are involved in this particular sanctuary. We only have a portion of it here, but this portion will at least give you a taste for what sort of things would be engaged in by the people coming to be healed by Asclepius. This dates from the first century, but probably is a recopying of an earlier inscription that may go back to the third or second century BCE. Here is a bit of this inscription that outlines what a person who is preparing for incubation needed to do in order to prepare to be healed by Asclepius. He should offer on the table of sacrifices the right leg and the entrails, and taking up another wreath of olive, first offer up to Zeus Apotropaios as nine-braided striped cake, and to Zeus Milikios a nine-braided striped cake, and to Artemis, missing part of the inscription here, probably a striped cake, and to Artemis Prothuraira, and to Earth, each a nine-braided cake. Having done this, let him preliminarily offer up a suckling pig on the altar to Asclepius, and lay on the table of sacrifices the right leg and the entrails, the innards. Let him then contribute three obels, that's about half a drachma, the equivalent of about half uh, of a regular person's daily work. So half day's work for an average person. Contribute three obels to the treasury. In the evening, let him offer three nine-braided cakes, two of them on the outer hearth, fireplace, to luck and remembrance, as personified figures. The third in the sleeping room, to Themis. So we're talking here about the place in which the sleeping takes place to receive the dream from Asclepius. Let him be ritually clean in the aforementioned respects and from sexual intercourse and goat's meat and cheese and, missing part of the inscription here, probably talking about abstaining from th those things until the third day. Let him who sleeps there take the wreath off and lay it on the bed. If anyone wants to submit inquires concerning one single matter several times, let him offer up preliminary a pig. But if he wants to ask about another matter, let him preliminary offer up another pig according to the regulations. It then goes on to describe even further a procession it mentions in regard to offerings to the gods, those sacrifices that are so central to honoring the gods in any cult, including Asclepius here, we have going on here. It also talks about the importance of thanking Asclepius for the healings that take place. Later on it says they, here, they shall contribute the thank offerings. So these thank offerings are very typical types of things to find in honor of Asclepius, but you would also find them in honor of, of other gods, 
thanking the God for the benefits, thanking the God for the favors they have done for the human beings involved. They shall contribute the thank offerings for a cure to Asclepius' treasury, a sixth of the Phocaean stater, a type of coin, to Apollo, and a sixth of the Phocaean stater to Asclepius. So a financial contribution in honor of the God to contribute towards the sanctuary's continuing work and healing other people. When they are restored to health, this is when this takes place. And whatever else the God may require must be done as well. It finishes off here. So that gives you a sampling of an inscription. That one can be found, it's in Schriften von Pergamon collection, the Asclepion inscriptions, number 161. And the translation I was using was by McMullen and Lane. Once this process of getting prepared for the incubation and then going into the incubation chamber overnight and sleeping, you would receive a, a hopefully, a dream from Asclepius that would either instruct you on what you need to do in order to get healed, it may even involve instructing you to go to a doctor or instructing you to have certain uh, medical treatments done to you. And then after you woke up, you would do those other uh, Thanksgiving offerings if you received healing that we talked about just there. Now one thing that these Thanksgiving offerings can also take the form of inscriptions. And we have a few inscriptions from the sanctuary at Pergamon that show that people who were healed would sometimes set up a monument in honor of Asclepius, as a way of honoring Asclepius, that whole honor exchange that we were talking about. Benefactions, good things, favors from the gods, and honors from the human beings who received those favors. Here's an example. To Asclepius, the loving god, Publius Aelius Theon of Rhodes, son of Zenodotus and Zenodota, through 120 days without drinking, and eating at the dawn of each day fifteen grains of white pepper and a half onion was manifestly saved from many great threats to health by the God's commands. And he set up this structure or statue for the use of children on behalf of his nephew Publius Aelius Calistratus, also called Plancianus, son of Antipater, according to his vow. So here's a very interesting example. This is an inscription that's a fulfillment of a vow. This is characteristic not only of how you honor Asclepius, but also other gods as well. And that is what scholars call the votive offering, or the fulfillment of a vow. The Greek term for this that they used was euke. And it's somewhat related to the other term that I mentioned earlier, the Thanksgiving offering, which they would call a eucheristerion, where you set up a monument, or a statue, or something to honor a god, as a fulfillment of a vow you made. And a vow would be something along the lines of, Asclepius, if you heal me from my stomach troubles, I will set up a statue for you. That's the vow. And then the fulfillment of the vow is once you are healed, you then established what you promised you would establish. And you explicitly state that often on the inscription itself. Or you at least say, that the monument or the honorary uh, mat materials were set up in, as a fulfillment of a vow you had made. So this idea of a vow is very important within uh, Greek religious life in Asia Minor in the Roman period. And you'll, you'll come across it again in this series, so it's important to notice it. Another more simple inscription you could put up 
uh, might be something like this one by Avateria. Avateria, this is number 139 in the Pergamon inscriptions uh, collected together. Avateria, her eyes cured, pays this vow to Asclepius' savior. Another one. Julius Midius, who has been bled under the biceps, set this up by divine command. So it's referring to a particular medical treatment that they had in the Roman period, bleeding. Now we know from especially Apodorus, but also from other locales where Asclepius was honored, that those who were healed by Asclepius would sometimes actually have created or carved the actual part of the body that had been healed as the honorary monument for Asclepius. So if your arm was healed, you might have an arm carved in marble and then put that up in honor of Asclepius. And there are many other body parts, including, for example, genitals, that illustrate that people felt that they had been healed in a more a reproductive way uh, in, in sanctuaries of Asclepius. We don't have quite as many of that object uh, uh, sort of evidence uh, from Pergamon as we do from Epidaurus. So Epidaurus is that other Asclepius sanctuary I mentioned over in Greece. Let's move on now to Alias Aristides. As I mentioned earlier, his so-called sacred tales are actually a series of writings that talk about the dreams he had at various stages in his life. It seems that Alias Aristides had difficulties in his life, uh, and uh, one thing after another plagued him. And there have been some that suggest he was a hypochondriac. He describes many stomach illnesses that he has, and also illnesses relating to the groin area at different points. And on various occasions throughout the decades from about 148 to 170 CE, Aristides made the journey to Pergamon uh, to engage in the incubation that we've just been reading about and learning about and receive dreams from Asclepius. Now, he, in his sacred tales, he goes less than systematically through many of the dreams he had and he kept track of the dreams he had at different points. Some of these dreams would have been received by uh, Aristides outside of an incubation context. In other words, it seems that Aristides felt that Asclepius frequently came to him and interacted with him in a down-to-earth way through his dreams to help Aristides. And Aristides wrote these sacred tales in part to honor Asclepius. Surprise, surprise. So even in the process of writing these things, he's not setting up a monument in this case, although he probably did that too. He's writing uh, praising stories about the way in which Asclepius saved him at various points in his life. So salvation is a very down-to-earth concept for people like Aristides and others living in the cities of Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. It includes the God saving you from illness in an ongoing way, and so we have many of these dreams related to us. The translation I'm using here is just about the only good English translation that's available. It's P. Alias Aristides, The Complete Works, and I'm using volume two, uh, translated by Charles A. Bear. And so in this translation, you'll find from oration, or speech numbers 47 and following, are the equivalent of the sacred tales one through five. So I'm using that translation here in this discussion. Before I give you a few examples of the healing-related dreams, I want to read you this one that illustrates to some degree the closeness that Aristides felt to this God who in an ongoing way had healed and saved Aristides in so many occasions. 
In this dream, there's an identification between Aristides, the worshiper, and Asclepius, the god, in the dream itself. Here's what he describes as one of his dreams. I dreamed that, as it were, in Smyrna, I went at evening to the temple of Asclepius. So there's also a temple of Asclepius at Smyrna. He's not in Pergamon at this point. Which is in the district of the gymnasium, I went with Zeno, and the temple was larger and covered as much of the portico as was paved. Remember, all this is describing a dream about going to the Asclepius temple at Smyrna. Smyrna is Aristides' hometown. At the same time, I was also thinking about this temple as if it were a vestibule. While I prayed and called upon the god, Zeno said, Nothing is more gentle. Also, speaking of the god, he named him a refuge and such things. I examined, examined, as it were, in this vestibule, a statue of me. Aristides sees a statue of himself in his dream. At one time I saw it as if it were me, and again it seemed to be a great and fair statue of Asclepius. Then I recounted to Zeno himself these things which appeared to me in my dream, and the part about the statue seemed to be very honorable. Again I saw the statue as if it were in the long portico of the gymnasium. So here you have an interesting dream in which the worshipper actually sees himself as Asclepius, Expressing this closeness that I'm trying to mention is sometimes the case in the interaction between gods and humans who honor them. Now let's move on to some examples of Aristides' description of his healings in connection with the uh, dreams he had. He then goes on like this. I slept again, and I thought that I was in the temple at Pergamon, and that the middle of the day had passed and I was fasting. And Theodotus came to me with some friends. Theodotus is a doctor that Aristides knows, and here it's in a dream, all of this description here. And Theodotus came to me with some friends, and having entered, he sat down beside me while I was lying thus upon a couch. I said to him that I was fasting, but he indicated that he knew, and said that, after all the things which these men are doing, I have put performing a phlebotomy on you, bleeding, treatment, for the aggravation comes from the kidneys and fasting, the doctor says is sort of a bastard outlet, which goes through the chest for the inflammation. So here we have, in the dream, Aristides having the doctor in the dream describing some sort of medical treatment. And while he said this, two sparks appeared before me. And in wonder I looked at Theodotus and felt it an omen, a indication of, that the gods were giving, of his words. And I asked him what these were. He said that they were from this inflammation, and he indicated what was troubling me. So the idea of getting rid of an inflammation through this dream about an inflammation and that doctors may be involved in what Asclepius advises. It's not always Asclepius directly doing something. Sometimes he'll involve doctors. Then I awoke, he says, after he describes the dream, and I found that it was that very hour in which I thought that Theodotus spoke to me and friends had actually now come to visit me. These dreams appeared to me while the doctor had arrived and had prepared himself to help as much as he knew how. But when he heard the dreams, being a sensible man, he also yielded to the God. And we recognized the true and proper doctor for us, and we did what he commanded. Here we have Aristides doing something he frequently does here in his sacred tales, and that is praise Asclepius as the ultimate doctor, as the ultimate healing God that is far above any doctor 
And, and the advice that Asclepius gives in dreams is going to be far more successful than the uh, advice of any doctor. But the doctors themselves obviously also believe in Asclepius and believe that Asclepius is their patron deity who will guide them in their activities. So it would depend on the perspective of the person involved. Here it's a, a dream uh, that he recounts and activity within the Pergamon sanctuary itself. He's here at the Asclepion. Immediately after Asclepius cured my difficulty in breathing, he healed in the following way the trouble about my neck and the tension in my ears and the epistotonus, and the, some sort of other uh, ailment he had, which was now fully developed. He said that there was a royal ointment. This is describing the dream now. Asclepius said to Aristides, he said to me that there was a royal ointment. It was necessary to get it from his wife. And somehow, after this, a servant of the palace, clad in white and girdled, appeared at Telesphorus temple and statue, and escor escorted by a herald, went out by the doors where the statue of Artemis is, and bore the remainder of the ointment to the emperor. End of the description of the dream now. Now he's, Aristides describing what he does. This more or less was the dream to recollect in it unclearly. So it was a bit vague. When I entered the temple and was walking about in the direction of the statue of Telesphorus, the temple warden Asclepiacus came up to me. And while he happened to stand by the statue, I told him the vision which I had, and I asked him, what might the ointment be? Or who should, should use it? So he's unsure of how to interpret the dream Asclepius gave him, but it's about a royal ointment. But when he had listened and marveled, the temple warden, as he was accustomed to do, he said, The search is not far, nor need there be much traveling, but I shall bring it to you right from here, for it lies by the feet of Hugiaia, since Tuke herself just now put it there, as soon as the temple was opened. So the gods are involved in helping out Asclepius, other gods, in the mindset of people like Aristides and others in the cities of Asia Minor. Tuke, fortune, was a noble lady, and going to the temple of Hugiaia, he brought the ointment, and I anointed myself where I happened to stand. The ointment also had a wonderful smell, and its power was immediately manifest, for faster than I have said it, the tension relaxed. Later, after asking the temple warden, I learned that the mixture was compounded of three ingredients, of fig sap, with which I anointed myself of myrrh, of nard, and of another expensive myrrh, named, I believe, after its leaf. Thus I made a preparation of it, and used it in the future, and all those symptoms abated. But at night, and here's he's describing the dream again, Telesphorus also appeared dancing about my neck, and a light shone on the opposite wall as if from the sun. About this time, I had the following dream, either when I had begun the practice of vomiting at evening, or the vomiting had not yet even taken place. This is the dream. On arising from bed, I had to eat nuts, dried figs, date nut, and some bread in addition to these things. End of the dream. Afterwards, I used these things beside the ointment, and they helped me very much. He also gave me a drug for my stomach, abdomen, and this general region, which I think was plastered above these places. He gave it by providing the following vision. We're talking about Asclepius here, once again, providing what medicine to use. I dreamed that the doctor Asclepiacus visited me upon examining me, made a poultice bandage 
of a drug called by the name Dittany, and at the same time prescribed that I use it for 30 days. I used it, and on the 30th night, again, I dreamed that Asclepiacus came and removed the polstice. So we have this going throughout the whole Sacred Tales, these stories of the various ways in which Asclepius, the god, comes and heals Aristides. There's a close relationship, you could say, between the devotee and the god, and a very clear idea that in return for these favors, in return for these benefactions that the god offers, for these healings of people in their everyday life, that the people who are healed honor the god in return. Perhaps it's good to finish off this discussion of Aristides here with a, one of his own statements on the power of Asclepius. Here he's contrasting the effectiveness he found with some of what human beings recommended to him with what he found uh, with Asclepius's recommendations through the dreams that we've been talking when Asclepius personally came to Aristides to provide salvation. This is what Aristides says here. But whatever errors my advisors made, let them be put aside. Yet even these things seem to belong to that which has strong reference to the God. For whenever the God prescribed and clearly stated them, the same regimen and the same things brought to my body and to my spirit salvation and strength and comfort and ease and high spirits and every good thing. But when some other person advised me and missed the intention of the God, they brought everything opposite to this. How is this not the greatest sign of the God's power? Asclepius brings benefactions, good things, to those who honor him. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll come again. In the next episode, we'll be looking at other ways in which the gods are interacting with human beings, at least in the mindset of the people back in Roman Asia Minor. And we'll look at oracles and divination, the messages of the gods and how to interpret them. I hope you'll come again.